You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Some of you as singles are currently in dating relationships. You've perhaps been on a date or two. Perhaps you've been dating for months, if not longer. I confess to you, I enjoy asking singles what they think of the other person. I like to hear their answer to that for different reasons. Uh, One, it kind of gives me a chance to kind of hear how they assess this other individual that they're dating. It also gives me a chance to hear what they consider when they do make assessments. What are you looking for? What kind of things are of noteworthy representation to you? When I ask you on the fly, what do you enjoy about this person? What does that person say about you? I have to tell you, I've done this drill a number of times enough that I've asked some singles this question, and the answer has left me either to think, you have not dated that long, or you have not dated that well. The answer has left me thinking, do you know this person very well? Answers seem to be quite shallow or light. And so the reality is that that's something that has to be flagged and observed. I remember one time in a a premarital class that my wife ran 28 years ago at First Baptist of Fort Lauderdale. I mean, just to mind you, just to note for you, we were in a premarital class. At First Baptist of Fort Lauderdale. And in that context, we were being asked as couples, what did we see in other person? And I remember the young woman to whom was being asked the question about her fiance, her answer left us kind of wondering, did she even know the man? She was on the eve of committing her life to him, and yet when she was asked to describe some things about him, it was rather light, like, well, he's nice. Okay, good. So they don't want you to marry a jerk. Uh, And that's about as far as the answer went. You couldn't quite figure out what exactly was going on there. We come to this topic about relational questions and how you think about people, Let me ask you a different relational question. It's not just, though, for the singles who are dating. It's for all Christians. What do you love about the Lord? What kind of answer do you give to that question? I think that answer can often be indicative of how well you know him, how well you have interacted with him how much you have heard from him in his word. And in light of that, how close of a relationship you either have or desire to have with him. Well, this morning we return back to the book of Joshua. We'll be in Joshua chapter 12. encourage you to turn your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, we do make those available at the Welcome Center for you. You're welcome to just simply listen along as I read the scriptures to you this morning. We've been making our way through the book of Joshua, having returned back to it last week after 
different reasons in the month of December and the beginning of January being out of it. But we return now to Joshua 12. And if I can just get your attention by drawing it back to Joshua 11, to remind you, for those of you who are with us, and to tell you, for those of you who are not, Joshua 11, verses 12 through 23, was really a summary of what happened in the whole of Joshua 1 to 11. So chapter 12 produces, if you will, a summary of the conquest. Now, admittedly, I'll go ahead and say it on your behalf, as we're about to see in Joshua 12, you probably come to Joshua 12 and be like, okay, just a bunch of names of a bunch of kings who lost. What's so significant about this chapter? In fact, if we can be even more honest, maybe perhaps in your own Bible reading, you come across sections like this in the scripture, and you're like, I mean, I trust it's true historically. I don't quite see its connection for me presently. But perhaps upon a slower reading of this and reflecting upon it, we can begin to understand the significance of what's being covered here. Because it does tell us things about the Lord that we need to not miss this morning. We see here in Joshua 12, provides a summary of the conquest. Initially, those of Moses in Joshua 12, 1 to 6, and then those of Joshua himself in verses 7 to the end of the chapter. And this is happening really as a summary of what's taken place before they move into chapter 13, the following of the allotment of land to be given to the tribes of Israel as promised to each of those tribes. After this conclusion and at the end of chapter 11, it's as if the author is saying here, here's the supporting evidence. Here's the raw data of chapter 12 of what I've written about in the previous chapters. And what we're going to learn this morning in Joshua 12 would be the following. We should be unified in praising God for the work he has done in our lives. That's where we're going to sort of see 12 take us. We should be unified in praising God for the work he has done in our lives. Let's first of all look at verses 1 to 6 as we see that God's people are to be unified. All along as I read Joshua 12, 1 to 6. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. From the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Arar, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon. And from the middle of the valley, as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and Arabah to the Sea of Shinaroth, eastward, in the direction of Beth Shemalath, to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of Rephaim, who lived at Ashroth and at Edrai and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selachah and all of Bashan to the boundary of Girgashites and the Machathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Verse 6, Moses, a servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. All right, Joshua 12, 1 to 6. Right now, you've probably concluded, that's a lot of geography of people, of places I can't pronounce. But what is the significance of that? 
The significance of that, as we see here in the first point, is to recognize there's something going on historically that needs to be connected for the people presently. See, these battles that's referenced back in verses 1 to 6 are battles that's already taken place, interestingly, by an earlier generation under the leadership of an earlier leader, Moses himself, on the other side of the Jordan River. In fact, that, that area has been designated as land for two and a half of the 12 tribes of Israel. But what's happening here in Joshua 12, verses 1 to 6, is really picking back up on the theme of Joshua 1. Let me, if I, have, if I can, have you turn back, keeping your finger in chapter 12, but have you go back to Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, after sort of the, the mantle of leadership is passed from Moses to Joshua, there is a significance here in verse 12 where Joshua says, To the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, and you will give us this land. And he's basically saying, and as it goes on in verses 14 and 15, to say, hey, though this land was promised to you, you also pledged to us, you would go and fight with us. You need to keep your word that we are a part of one people together. Now what's happening in Joshua 12 is just instead of looking forward on the other side of the Jordan River, they're now looking back to the original part of the Jordan River that they originally came from. And it said, we are a part of one people, one shared history. The significance of this for the writer is because he wants to make sure to guard the unity of God's people. That by this history that they have, that they are reminded of their identity together. That these two and a half tribes that were going to be settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River, you could imagine what it would be like if you were them. Hey, will they forget us now that they don't need us? Will we be to them a different people? not with them seen as fellow Israelites. And so what's happening here is that Joshua is saying, let the record show. As our history has documented, as our people would not forget, we are together, one people. There's a correlation here, an application for us today. It's a problem even in the church today. A lot of times Christians can feel and even give the impression to others that they might think that in fellowship together, well, we just don't belong. You're from different neighborhoods in Miami. You're from different backgrounds. You've had different experiences. You're from other countries. Your people are not my people. My people are not your people. But perhaps it's not geographic or ethnic. Perhaps it's economic. Or perhaps it's personal by way of personality. Or perhaps life experience like divorce or other things that people have gone through. Or maybe you just feel like, oh, I'm just not as biblically smart as others. I don't belong. It's important to remember that we were all once lost. I'm mindful how Paul speaks to the Corinthian church. He tells the Corinthian church who can be a bit proud and arrogant at times. He goes, hey, pipe down if you could, please. Don't forget where you came from. First Corinthians chapter one, he says, just want to be clear. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the seemingly wise. 
And by assessment, that would make the Corinthians the fools. At least in the world's eyes. This is a significant point here to recognize because as we see the unity being declared as important by their shared history, so that unity has to be recognized today by God's people, even seated in this room. The reality can be, though you sit in a pew with somebody else around you, you might think, think you have nothing in common with those around you. That might be your starting point of assessment, how you view those around you. But Jesus commands us to think differently as him with being our Savior. Because to have him as our Savior is to have the church as our family. In John 13, he commands us to love one another. In John 17, he's commanding us to have unity together as he and the Father have unity. He is praying for us accordingly. What would bring unity? Well, it's not going to be our land. It's not going to be our physical battles. Hey, remember that time we went up against the people of West Palm Beach and we destroyed them? No one here is saying that. You should not. That's not how we assess. So what would bring the unity for us at Grace Church? Well, I'll give you seven points to consider. When we remember that we have a shared history, a shared savior, a shared identity, a shared comparison, excuse me, companion, a shared calling, a shared perspective, and a shared security. Now, what does this mean? A shared history. Paul himself says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were once dead in our trespasses and Paul puts himself in that perspective. This is not unique to some type of apostolic perspective. Even back in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is saying, I am a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. There's no one who has a relationship with God because they have deserved it, they have earned it, that they have been awarded it because of their righteousness, their goodness, their intelligence. No, friends, we have a shared history. And if we ever lose that solidarity with one another, then diversity and division will start to creep in. We also have a shared Savior. We have one problem and we have the same solution. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the substitute, the one who would make payment for sin. Friends, for some of you here, that might actually be why there is diversity with you versus others around here. It's not because of your ethnicity. It's not because of your economics. It's not because of your education. It might be simply on this one point alone. You have not yet decided for yourself that you want to surrender your life to Christ, the only Savior of mankind, the only one that's qualified as a substitute, His righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness, His wrath in exchange for our forgiveness that He took upon Himself in the cross that we otherwise deserve. And friends, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, then that's the point by which we might have a shared history, but we don't have the same Savior. But for those of us who have, we are in the same family. Third, that shared identity. When Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says how we are in Christ and therefore we are a new creation. You're not like a 2.0 version. You're an entirely different you. And some of you know this. I've enjoyed so many of you hearing your testimonies this last year, this two years before that, three years before that. So many of you are new Christians, and so many of you have been able to testify to me firsthand, wow, Eric, you don't understand how different I am. I'm like, give it to me. I want to hear it. 
Others of you I knew before you got saved. And I now know you today, and I'm like, dude, I see it. It is like unbelievable how much you've changed. It's radical how God has given you a new heart, a new affection. It's also a shared companion. Every single member of the people of God has been given, as Jesus promised in John 15 in his absence, the Holy Spirit. We're not alone. We're not forsaken. We have a shared companion by the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Ephesians 1 would say he's given us a pledge of our inheritance in Christ. It's a promise made. The significance of that is huge because it gives us our confidence and our growth in the Lord and our confidence that the Lord will not abandon us. He has pledged himself to us and given us himself. We also have a shared calling. The shared calling is not an occupation of how we, what we do for a living. I mean, let me just give you one of several examples that I could give, but let me just talk about from the standpoint of how Scripture describes a shared calling. Romans chapter 12, talking about this sort of differing gifts, but then he gets into this reality of how the shared calling within community. Chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Never repay evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Friends, that's not a Bible verse to one Christian. That's a Bible verse to a church in the city of Rome by which we identify as a church ourselves. That calling is still ours today to be here. This is what it's supposed to look like, our shared calling. It's also our shared perspective. The things of this world have grown strangely dim to us. The things of this world no longer hold mastery over us. We have a shared perspective and also a shared security. We don't have to fear the future. The reality is death is coming for every single person in this room, sooner or later, expected or otherwise. You will die, as will I, unless the Lord returns before them. But we can have hope that no matter what happens, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I say that because Joshua is telling these tribes, hey, we're still together, though we might be physically in different places. We're still together, one people. Friends, that was a foreshadowing of what it would be like for us in the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be a people who are known for our unity. That is how we are to be interacting. It's practical. It's even how you sit with people, how you pray for other people, how you share meals with other people, how you love to ask questions because you love to learn each other's stories. The text continues in Joshua 12 we not only see that God's people are to be unified, secondly, we see God keeps his word. In Joshua 12, he shifts now from the historic battles under Moses' leadership to now the recently historic battles, the battles under Joshua. 
And you'll notice how both verse 1 and verse 7 start the same way. Verse 1, now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated. Look at verse 7. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated. And then he goes through and starts to list off all of the kings defeated. Now, it's significant here to recognize verse 24 gives a summary. 24 says, in all 31 kings. Literally, what just said there from verse 7 all the way down to verse 24, he actually lists out every single king. Now, to give you a sense of proximity of this, these 31 kings represented the rulers of a land that was about 150 miles from north to south, about 50 miles from east to west. And this land was the land that these 31 kings, sort of provincial governors, if you will, by today's sort of representations, lived in that area, ruled over that land. Not anymore. And all of them are detailed. Now, the reason this is significant is because what's happening here is it's vindicating the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. It reaches all the way back earlier, past Deuteronomy, past Numbers, past Leviticus, past Exodus, reaches back into Genesis. And it grabs a hold of Genesis 12. It grabs a hold of Genesis 15 and says, I want to tell you what happened there, lest you forget. This is not just your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. This goes further and further back. Genesis 12, verses 5 to 7 says, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. They came to the land of Canaan. That's the land we're talking about now here. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give the land. Three chapters later, Genesis 15, verse 18, 21 says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Gadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And what's happening here from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 is basically saying, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. It's what Paul would say about Abraham later in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Friends, sometimes at Grace Church, we sing the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, it has words like this. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Friends, Joshua chapter 12, verses 7 to 24, is like the Old Testament version of great is thy faithfulness. And the way you would expect, there's a listing off of 31 kings. Boom, 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 boom. 
one after another after another after another. Some of you might be familiar, if you're history buffs, of the Battle at Waterloo. A lot of you are like, I have no clue where that is and what happened there. Fear not, that's why I'm here. The Battle of Waterloo took place in Europe in 1814. Napoleon, the Emperor of France, who had been exiled a couple of times, he escaped from exile again, and he marched on Paris with the intention to reclaim his throne from King Louis XVIII. The European powers at that time, including Britain, the Netherlands, and Prussia, did not want Napoleon back in power, and they declared war standing together as an army known as the Seventh Coalition. Napoleon realized, this is my chance. Though there might be more of them than us, and by more, I mean they had 115,000, and Napoleon had 85,000. Though they had more, they didn't have more experience. Napoleon thought, we can kill him. We can destroy him. I will reign again. And he wanted to separate them in order to do that. In June 18, 1815, the armies of Napoleon against Field Marshal the Duke of Wellington, met at a place called Waterloo. Well, Waterloo is what's now known today as Belgium, in Europe. And the battle became a defining moment in European history, that decisive battle of its age. And it ended the 23-year reign of Napoleon. And the reason this is so significant is because that battle determined the fate of Europe. It would be a completely different history if Napoleon had won that battle. Friends, here in Joshua chapter 12, this series of battles in a far-off land of Canaan decided the fate not only of Europe but of the world because of what would take place there. You look at Joshua 12 and you see the list of the names of these kings, starting in verse 9, the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, and just on and on it goes. You might ask the question, that would be an understandable question, which is why do we have to list all the kings? Why can't we just go to verse 24? Why does God say, hey, in all the 31 kings, you beat all of them, thanks to me? Because every single one of these kings would have represented a particular historical marker for them. What you see here in the details is answered prayer. Answered prayer because every one of these battles that they won, it was because they went to the Lord. In fact, originally, they didn't win all these battles, as you know, in the very beginning. Part of that was their presumption. They didn't seek the Lord. But then once they did, they began to resume back to how God had planned for them, which is to have victory. The significance of this should not be lost because of the reality of how we can see even in every single one of these kings, for them in their history, it was a meaningful moment. When their sons, when their dads, when their brothers march into battle and fought on behalf of their people with the promise of what God said he would do in Joshua 10, verse 42. The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And if God was fighting for them, they would be fine. What I want us to consider, though, in the details of these kings, though, by consideration and connection for us, is really kind of picking up what we learned last week in Joshua 10 and 11. One of the things that we learned last week is why we should pray with specificity. And picking back up on that in Joshua 12 is why we should praise with specificity as well. 
We ask God for particular things. We're not just praying Nike prayers we talked about last week. Remember that? Just just do it, God. Just, you know, just do it. Well, similarly, it sometimes very disappointingly, when we get times those praising God for what he's doing, we say, God, we just want to thank you for all that you're doing. What is he doing? Well, he's just doing a lot of stuff. That's great. Like, like what? We just, there's just so much stuff. Well, that good. Then you should probably be pretty well stocked with some examples of that. Well, just, you know, all over, he's doing a work. Okay, could we just a couple of those maybe? Just a few? Here in Joshua 12, king after king after king after king after king after king, 31 times the people, the place became illustrations for them of how God answers prayers and how they pray, God answers prayers and how they praised him in response. Too often we generically praise God, but then we don't water our faith with specific ways by which we count his work. Such detail in our prayers would lead us to more encouraging times of faith. Saying it to you differently, the seeds of faith are watered with the detailed prayers of thankfulness. I'll say that to you again. The seeds of faith are watered with the detailed prayers of thankfulness. Let me give you an example of this. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 105. Psalm 105, right in the middle of your Bibles, starts off in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. I mean, that's how verse 1 starts. Make his deeds known. Let, let it be known. Don't, don't make it the best kept secret. Make it the worst kept secret. Verse 2. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence. Continually remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And then here we go. Verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promised Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Verse 12, when they were few in number of little accounts and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And saying that, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure, to teach his elders wisdom. Verse 23, then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and the Lord God made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Verse 26, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen 
They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts to their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. Verse 34, he spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out of Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and he gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed from the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Friends, do you see what's happening in there? He is not simply saying in verse 1 and 2, praise the Lord. All right, next. He's like, let's stop and let's talk. Joshua could have just said in the text, and all the kings were defeated. But for generations that would follow, they would need to know all those kings because they would otherwise forget. Friends, can I ask you a question? It builds on the question I asked you last week. What do your prayers sound like? What are you asking of the Lord? And then what are you praising God for? I submit to you that with more specific reflection, on the particular ways by which God is answering prayers. Your faith, as it was for them, so it can be for you and me today, would be watered and grow as God reminds us of the greatness of what he is doing in our lives. And we see that in detail here. I challenge us to move away from generically praising God and become particular with the details as we just read in Psalm 105. It's too often, we often forget that history and we need to go back to it and remind ourselves. Which takes us third and final. Kind of the whole chapter as a whole. God will rule the world. Let's just put this in context. If you just finished this many weeks and months of battle, you are exhausted. You just want to have a time of peace. You want to put away your swords and get out your plows and you want to farm the land and just live in a time of peace. But what's happening in Joshua 12 as the land is about to be allotted and divided up in Joshua 13 and following, what's happening in Joshua 12 is there a time where they reflect. But we can remember that what's happening here in Joshua 12 is a foreshadowing. It's a summary of the conquest. We are right to think of it as a foreshadowing of the coming victory of the Lord. A pledge, if you will. A type of what's to come. In fact, earlier, not earlier rather, later in Revelation chapter 11, as you can hear this and just take encouragement of the reality of what's to come. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. And what were they saying? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, I want to acknowledge what even a few of us prayed together in our prayer time this morning. This world is broken. I mean, it is jacked up. And I'm not just talking like what's going on in other countries, though that's tragic what's happening in other countries. I'm talking about what's happening in our own country. Now, understandably, to a lot of your defense, you just might be like, dude, I'm in the grind. I'm on the third shift. The fact I'm sitting here in this room awake right now is stunning. Others of you are like, listen, I'm parents of young kids. The only thing that's going crazy in my life right now is the fact that I'm somehow operating with an hour of sleep. But for just a brief moment, if you look up and look around you, you think, man, things are broken. And you kind of wonder, like, are things going to be put back together? What's it going to look like? I cannot promise you, in fact, I would dare even say I can almost guarantee you, which probably the opposite of I can't promise you, that no matter what happens in the upcoming political election, in some sense, it'll be more of the same, generally speaking. I don't mean to say as citizens don't participate in the public sphere. By all means do. Love your neighbor by being engaged with the opportunity and the rights you have as a citizen to engage lovingly in these matters and how you vote and how you decide and how you get engaged. I commend all of that. But I'm not under the illusion that through such initiatives we can kind of create heaven on earth. The only way we're going to create heaven on earth is when Christ comes back and creates heaven on earth. And it's until that day that we live in the sense of groaning and longing. That sense of we are ourselves, as Peter would say, that we, ironically, we are exiles. We are sojourners wandering and longing to cross the Jordan River that we might enter into our promised land where we have our king who will rule over all of the world that he created. And that day is coming. Friends, I hope that encourages you because in comparison to all of eternity, this life will just be here and then gone in a second. A grain of sand, steam off a coffee cup, you see it and it's over. But for all of eternity, he will reign. And you see the significance of his reign in Revelation 11, you're reminded, while the kings of the earth were put down by God's people in Joshua 12, so will all nations. What does it say in Philippians chapter 2? The significance of what is coming, what should be here now, and the humility that's in our hearts. But what does it say in Philippians chapter 2? The significance of what's to come. Christ, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, will you confess him as king under your salvation or will you concede him as king under your judgment and condemnation? I pray that you would see the hope that's found in Christ 
know of the rain that will come soon and very soon. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.